0: Thank you for listening to Center Point Church's weekly podcast. It's our goal to serve Tallahassee and beyond in word and in deed. For more information about our church, please visit www.cptchurch.com. Also, be sure to stay tuned after this week's sermon for original worship songs from various Tallahassee singers and musicians. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. God bless. Well, I don't know where you're at. Um, My sense is that some of you anticipating another move is like just that. It's another move. It reminds me of um, my wife and I. We, I think it was four years into our marriage, and we celebrated our 14th move in four years of marriage. Um, And... But I will say this, that every single one of the places we lived in had a special place in our marriage, um, in our spiritual pilgrimage, and God brought this fellowship to this place in His timing and has used this place for the growth, um, the spiritual deepening of our hearts, and because of that, this is a holy place. And for me, for us to be leaving today, and when we leave today, we're gone. In the middle of this place, I want to raise up my own Ebenezer on behalf of the church, and and to 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 to, to be able to celebrate what God has done and how far he has taken this church up to this point. I'm sure the church wouldn't appreciate us putting a stone uh Ebenezer in the middle of their church to celebrate our f- few months of being here, but I think at least in our hearts we can we can recognize that God has done something special not only in bringing us here but also taking us beyond here, and that he is shepherding us the entire way. And I don't know about you, but sometimes even though I know that God is shepherding me, I don't feel like he's shepherding me. There are times when I feel like, where are you? Where are you? Um, I, I feel that way about every week come twenty four to forty eight hours before I'm supposed to stand up before you. And I start to feel inadequate. I start to feel my insecurities rising to the to, to the surface. And I have to remind myself of the gospel. And I have to remind myself of the goodness and, and greatness of God. And, and that he is sufficient. That his grace is all sufficient. And, and all of those things. But the truth is, I know. I know that though God has called me to be your under-shepherd, I'm a sheep. And a lost and dumb and blind one at that. And what business do I have coming before the body of Christ, the people of God, and bearing what little bit of light I may have. The truth is, the truth is that all of us, all of us need Christ to be the shepherd of our souls. And that's why we come here to remind ourselves that he really does love us. And the truth, y'all, is that God really, really loves you. I know that if he were able at this moment, he would show himself to you and show his face and his delirious affection for you. And one day he will. In the meantime, he has demonstrated his love for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. While we were condemned, he has made us whole. And when we were discouraged, he he became courageous on our behalf. And when we became sick, he touched us. Even if by the hem of his own garment, he brought us healing in, in the depths of our hearts and lives. And and so when we start to feel these things, the, the, the insecurities, the, um, the depth of despair, I don't know, there are times where I have despaired of my own life. I thought when I was young that things would get better when I was old. I found that as I've gotten older, it's harder to walk the Christian life, not easier. And so, I really, what all that I need to do is, to, is to, to turn my eyes to Jesus. Just like Peter when he was in the, in the water and walking towards Jesus and he, he turned his eyes and saw the amazing things that he, his feet were doing and then he began to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. You and I come this morning to turn our eyes back on Jesus. And the scriptures say, let us fix our eyes on Christ let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, this morning, we are, we are coming to get rightly aligned in terms of our vision. And our vision needs to be not on ourselves, but on Christ, who is everything to us. He is the hope of glory. He is the, he is the one who has made a way for us like no one else could And so our mind and our hearts need to be fixated on Christ. And we need to remind ourselves too of the great price that Christ paid so that we can be made secure in Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to preach it to our own hearts regularly. I know when I go a single week without... um, being in fellowship with the body of Christ and hearing from the Word of God that I forget the gospel. I start to believe other things. They become internalized and I begin to walk in paths that are not healthy for me. So that's why we're here. This next week we're going to be at a new place. And I'm hoping that this will be a place of great encouragement for you. But see, you're not all that different than any other Christians and followers of God before you. God never lets his people get too settled in one place. I mean, you look at the Israelites, and God had led them to a certain place and they'd get comfortable there, and then God would move them on, and, and, and in their hearts, they had all these attachment issues to deal with. They they'd prefer to be here. They're tired of being wanderers, but you and I are called to put our, 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 our citizenship, to, to understand that our citizenship is not in one place here. Our, our citizenship Our sense of belonging is in the kingdom of heaven and in the will of God for our lives. So we're going to follow the Holy Spirit of God into a new place. In a place where God is going to do amazing things. I know that by faith we can anticipate that he will do so. And this afternoon we're going to go and have sandwiches and begin to to make our place ready for uh, next week when we worship for the first time in that new place. And I hope, that, I hope that you're getting excited about it. But fix your eyes on Christ as you do so. Last week we talked about something that is a high priority in the kingdom of God, and that is His care for the poor. And I wanted to, to follow up on, on that whole thing, um, to do a part two before we enter into our sermon series in in our new place, and talk about the poverty mandate, we'll call it part two um, this morning, and, and 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 talk about a little bit what what thi- this thing is 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 really all about. When it says in the scriptures, as we looked at in James 1:27, that true religion is reflected in our care for the poor and needy, the widows and orphans and such. What is that rooted in, really? Of course, you have to go back into the character of God and then how that manifested itself in the creation motif that God created us in his image. And as image bearers, we have a responsibility towards one another and that those who are bearers of the image of God have dignity before God and before men. And so no one, especially those who are the redeemed image bearers, those who have been redeemed by Christ, no one who is in the body of Christ should be suffering in abject poverty. But we who have been resourced with the blessings of God should be compassionate and caring and ensure that no one is in need. But what is what else is it rooted in? Deuteronomy chapter 15 has a couple of verses that are really really important in understanding God's passion for his people being compassionate towards the poor. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11 says this. It says this. Um There will always be poor people in the land. There will always be poor people in the land. Now, I'm convinced that that's precisely the verse that Jesus was alluding to in the New Testament when he said, the poor you will always have with you. There will always be poor people in the land, and then it follows, therefore I command you to be open-handed, to lend freely, to be generous. The statement is rooted in our responsibility towards the poor. Many in contemporary churches take that statement as the means by which to excuse themselves in in care for the poor because there will always be poor people. Therefore, why bother? If you can't change the dynamics of economic poverty, then then why bother? Focus on the things that you can change, right? Right? Have you heard that before? I've heard it before in the Sunday schools and Bible studies that I attended when I was growing up. And I really did. I heard a doctrine towards the poor from the church of basically this, why bother? But focus on what you can change, and that's spiritual poverty. That would be fine if that's what the passage was saying, but that's not at all what it was saying. It was rooted in our obligation towards the poor. So in verse 11, it says this, there will always be poor people in the land. And in verse 4, there's another statement that is made that seems to contradict verse 11. In verse 4, it says this, there should be no poor among you. There should be no poor among you. Now, does that make sense? If you put those two statements side by side, do they not sound contradictory? To me, they do. But I know that they're not contradictory. They must be reconciled in some manner or another. But on the surface, at least, they seem to inherently contradict each other. There will always be poor people in the land. There should be no poor among you. (laughs) Which one is right? They're both right. But it's in how we understand those verses. And let me place the italics where I think that they belong. And then tell me what the passage actually is saying. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says, There will always be poor people in the land. There should be no poor Among you. Now what does it mean? The passage is. Talking about. And distinguishing between two different types of poor persons. The poor who are in the land. But are not. Israelites. They are what the Bible refers to as strangers, aliens, and poor wanderers. People who find themselves in and among Israel but are not Israelites. They're foreigners and they're poor. And the Israelites are commanded to be generous and compassionate towards them. And why? Because at one point the Israelite was a stranger, alien, and poor wanderer. But God in his mercy and grace came and ministered redemption to them so that they have now become the envy of the entire world. And therefore, the Israelite, as he is compassionate towards the stranger, alien, and poor wanderer, celebrates what God has done in their life. And they become the extension of God's blessing to others. However, in verse 4, it says this, there should be no poor among you, meaning what? The Israelites, the people of God, the covenant community of Israel. There should be no poor among you, it says. In other words, there's a higher level of responsibility We have a responsibility to strangers, aliens, and poor wanderers to be generous towards them. But with regard to those who are poor, but inside the covenant community, we have a higher level of obligation to them. Now, if you were to summarize both obligations, you could do so with two verbs. With regard to the poor who are outside the covenant community of Israel, we are commanded to alleviate their poverty. or to relieve their poverty. But with regard to the poor who are inside the covenant community of Israel, we are being commanded to what? To eliminate their poverty. There should be no poor among you, it says. Now, if we were to take this Old Testament principle, and if we were to traject that Old Testament principle into the New Testament, making proper epical, personal, and cultural adjustments, but traject it into the New Testament, the dynamic equivalent of the, of the you in the Old Testament would be who in the New Testament. Are you following me? Do you understand the question? Then you can say the answer. The you in the Old Testament would be who in the New Testament? The church. The church. So if you were to apply this principle into the New Testament church, you would say that you and I as as a body of believers are commanded to eliminate poverty within the covenant community of Christ. Right? Right? That would be the appropriate application of that principle into the New Testament. Now, if that Old Testament principle was intended to be continually practiced in the New Testament, surely you would have seen the New Testament church actually practicing it. Right? You would expect, if this is important to God, if this is central to the faith, that you would have seen the New Testament church actually putting that principle into practice. Acts chapter 4 says this. Listen to the words. They're fairly important. It says that they shared everything in common, meaning the body of believers. They shared everything in common. No one considered their possessions as their own. And there were, listen, no poor among them. So Luke the author of the book of Acts takes the language of De- Deuteronomy 15:4 to describe what was transpiring in their midst. What does that tell you? That the poverty mandate in the Old Testament of eliminating poverty within the covenant community is a live principle. It's something that is a central focus of the, the body of Christ. And we talked about that a little bit last week and how that, that principle is practiced in the church. It's through elders and, and deacons. The elders focus on the word and, 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 and the spiritual side of the gospel, but the deacons help to promote the prosperity of the body by ensuring that no one is in need of Within our fellowship. Now, in in the book of Acts, there were two ways that that the church practiced the first prong of the Old Testament poverty mandate. And the first prong of the Old Testament poverty mandate was what? To eliminate poverty within the covenant community. Right? Right? And there were two ways that the New Testament church practiced this principle in the book of Acts. The first, as you saw in Acts chapter 4, the first way in which they did it was within the church. Within the church. But there was a second way that they practiced the first prong of the poverty mandate of eliminating poverty within the church of Christ the first was within the church the second was between the churches you see at the council of jerusalem at the council of jerusalem and you you can read about this a little bit in the book of galatians but at the Council of Jerusalem, there were numerous theological issues, hot theological issues like, do you require the Gentiles to be circumcised? Um, do, you, do, you, do you eat meat that's been sacrificed to, to, to idols? That was a huge issue. As the, as the kingdom was advancing, as the gospel was advancing, there were numerous new issues of, of Gentiles being grafted into Israel, all the implications of that. But you find in the book of Galatians that the one theological motif that Peter was most concerned about communicating to his brother, the Apostle Paul, was not those things, but something else. Do you remember what it was? He said this. He said the one thing that he wanted me to know was to remember the what? To remember the poor. And Paul said, that was the very thing that I was eager to do. And so Paul went about the work as he was preaching the gospel into resourced areas, planting churches among the Gentiles that he would take up offerings in all of those churches, offerings for the saints that would be distributed to the needier churches, especially those in Jerusalem and and towards the end of paul's life the book of acts records this happening where paul decides to gather the offerings that he's he's taken up from the resourced churches and to bring them to the under-resourced church in jerusalem and when he decided to do so, his staff and his his brothers in, in Christ begged him not to do it. They knelt before him, pleading and weeping for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And why? Because they knew if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be immediately arrested. And he would likely be put to death. And so they begged him not to go. And Paul said to them, He said, Would you stop troubling me? Do you not know that I'm willing to lay down my life for Christ's sake? And his co laborers washed their hands and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And Paul went to Jerusalem. Paul meant to do a lot of things that he he didn't get around to. He intended to go to Asia Minor, but you know what the scriptures say? That God closed the door. But Paul intended to go to Jerusalem to bring offerings for the poor, and God did not close the door. It's interesting, and we don't know the whole story, but how does the book of Acts close? The book of Acts close closes with Paul being arrested and his fate uncertain. And what does that tell you? What does that tell you? First of all, the most important Christian leader in the early church gave prominent focus to the poverty mandate. Secondly, secondly, God blessed his efforts. What does that tell you about God? That God is willing to sacrifice his best leadership for the sake of the poverty mandate. In Isaiah chapter 3, There's a passage of Scripture that is important for us to look at. I need to buy like a half dozen or so of those reading glasses and leave them in all the places where I need them because I never bring them when I need them. Um, Beginning with verse 13, it says... The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders. Did y'all hear that? The elders and leaders of his people. Listen to what God says. This is the case he makes against the Israelites, the elders and the leaders of, 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 of that covenant community. He says, it is you. Who have ruined my vineyard. Listen to this. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. let's assume that center point church was being brought into court that god was filing suit against center point church and we all go in there fairly sheepishly right and then he says he says i'm bringing a case against all of you, but especially against the elders and the leaders of this fellowship, because the plunder from the poor is in your houses. Now, if I were standing there, I'd turn to Mike Houghton and I'd say, Mike, what have you been doing, man? You got us all in trouble. You. You idiot, if you're going to break into somebody's house, go to the rich people. What, what sense does it make to break into poor people's houses and steal their stuff? They don't even have any stuff, man. What are you doing? Mike is going to say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never broken into a poor person's house. And I'm going to turn to Jonathan Watson. Jonathan Jonathan, you need to repent before God because we're all going to get destroyed because of you. You've been keeping, you've been living a double life. You, you know, you you're on computers and then you run to the restroom and break into poor people's houses and stuff and steal their stuff. What are you doing? But but then I'm going to say, hold on, Jonathan's too smart for that. Mike's too smart for that. What are you thinking? We God, we don't break into poor people's houses and steal their stuff plunder from the poor is not in our houses. But if one properly understands the poverty mandate and they understand that their possessions are not their own and that a portion of it is the poor's, then when we maximize our spending on ourselves, then that which which was intended for the poor is in our house. And we enter into judgment from God because of the manner in which we have not properly portioned our resources. We have not remembered the gospel. Paul told us in in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich rich. We forgot what the Lord has done for us and we think that the gospel and and the rest of our lives, the blessing that God pours towards us is for us. And what God intends to bless through us is lost and those who are suffering and in need become embittered because of us. Now, there are a number of ways in which we can better practice the poverty mandate at Centerpoint Church. The first is in our own private finances. And I don't know what any of you make. I don't. I don't know what you make. But I know this. I do know this, whatever you presently make, you've lived off of less. I do know that. So that everybody in this room can adjust and to sacrifice some of that which they have been blessed with towards the poor. So, every single person in this room, I don't care who it is, how much money you have, how much you don't have, everybody in this room, in their own private financial management of their resources, can sacrifice towards the ministry of Christ among the poor. Everyone. And I will say that on a private level, I'm not doing enough, and I need to repent. There's a second way that we can practice the poverty mandate, and that is in our collective budget. Now, I have partially helped to superintend the shaping of our budget. But I will say this. Our budget doesn't presently reflect our passion for the poor. And God's priority towards them. And for that, on a collective level, we need to, one, repent, and two, become more educated about how passionate God is towards this. One thing, too, though, is if we became corporately accountable to God around this principle, All of us on an individual level could be giving sacrificially to the church, knowing that the church is handling the resources with the utmost care to make sure that the poor have what is rightly theirs. Okay? Are you agreeing with me? There's another way. And... um, And on this, I've just got to give you a gold star. Just one gold star, not a two or three yet. But you you deserve a gold star for this. Um, Prioritizing the ministry of the gospel among the poor in your programs is a way in which we can practice the poverty mandate. And y'all that's happening and many of you are not even aware of it but there's exciting things that are happening through the work of Centerpoint Church and I hope the kids don't mind me talking about this at all but like just just this past weekend I hear that there were four new kids who gave their lives to Jesus thank you candy um, and, and so four kids walked out of deep impoverishment and into the blessings of God and to an, an eternal hope. And that is something that we can do more of. While well, you get a gold star, that doesn't mean that you're doing enough or that we're doing enough. We got more work to do. There's more opportunities there's greater opportunities there's opportunities for us to open up mental health services in and among the poor to where we can see the gospel spread through that mechanism we have the opportunity to establish schools we have the oppor- we're where in those schools not only do they they hear about biology and english but they hear that jesus christ is the Lord of everything. And they're cultivated. So there's opportunities, y'all. There's works that we can do as a church to celebrate the poverty mandate, to fulfill the poverty mandate in significant ways. There's more opportunity there. And I'll say this too as a bit of a commercial, but in the new facility that we're entering into, because we'll have it 24-7. And when we get up to the point of being able to afford it, and it's all ours, there's 40,000 square feet of opportunity to leverage in the ministry of the gospel to the poor. The last thing that I'm going to say, and there's I, there are more bullet points that I could cover, but but for now, I'm just going to Cover this one thing, and it's the most important thing. There is a sense in which the practice of the poverty mandate inherently is to be understood as a ministry to the poor, right? That it's a ministry to, to people. But do you know? Do you know that the scriptures look at it altogether differently? Remember Matthew 25? He says, Whatever you have done unto the least of these brethren, you have done it. You have done it unto me. So look, there is there is kind of the human aspect of, of, of the poverty mandate, but there's a worship aspect. To the poverty mandate. There is a sense in which we are ministering directly to Christ. In our care for the poor. It's a mystery to me. To me it's one of the finer mysteries in all of the scriptures. How when we minister to the poor... That we're ministering to Christ. I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this. In Jeremiah twenty-two fifteen, 15, it says this. He says, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Your father did what was right and so all went well with, with, with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. In other words, he practiced the poverty mandate. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? So, we can come into greater fellowship with God, knowing Him more deeply and more fully, worshiping Him by our practice of the poverty mandate. This principle... When I, when I preach this principle to you, this is intended. This is intended not to be something that over the next couple of days that you work it all out. This is a principle that, that is a life principle. You will be practicing. If you internalize this and you begin to activate this, this is something that will envelop your entire life. And so when you think about the life of Center Point Church and the opportunities that we have to be authentically like Christ in this city and how important the poverty mandate is in the execution of all of that, man, we're gonna be having a load of fun. We're gonna we're gonna come to know Christ in some new and fresh and ways we didn't know before. I'll close with this. Um, once Lindsay and I went to a gas station, and it was a cold day in New Orleans, an unusually cold day in New Orleans. There were very few of those, but this was a... I mean, it was in the 20s, and it was freezing. and. I was at the gas station and you know how it is when you're at the gas station on a cold day you don't want to be outside and you live in New Orleans so you don't like you didn't wear a coat so you're out there you know hurry up you know so you don't really want to be outside very long at all and you're focused on getting the gas into the tank and you getting back into the car well next to me was a van and out of the van came a man who I knew. His name was Pastor Mack. And in the van was, was a load of homeless people. They were all homeless. And Pastor Mack had driven with his van all over the city to pick them up because it was, an it was going to be an especially cold night in the city of New Orleans. And he wanted to make sure that those homeless men and women did not freeze to death. And so he picked them all up, and he was looking for a place to keep them warm, and he asked me if I knew of any place. Now, I happened to be the director of Desire Street Ministries at the time, and we owned 36,000 square feet. That was empty. But when he asked me if I knew of a place, I said, well, there's this shelter and this shelter. And we embraced. He got back into his car. I got back into my car. And Lindsay said this to me. She said, Dad, I wish you were more like Pastor Mac. Well, Lindsay has a way. (laughs) of speaking and cutting right to the core of my being. And I was like, Lindsay, why would you ever say that? Because I want to be her champion, right? She's my daughter. I want to be her hero. I don't want to ever disappoint her. What are you saying? She says, well, Dad, Pastor Mac cares about homeless people. And you don't. And I was like, Lindsay, do you know all the stuff that I do with my life? I mean, I do a lot of stuff, but I couldn't convince her. I drop by homeless people all the time, and I do nothing for them. And she knew that that wasn't right. So she and Lacey and myself adopted a homeless woman that we would find every day going to school named Miss Fanny, who we didn't get to know her well, but she was a precious person in our lives. Can you think about all the ways in which you are going to find Christ over the years as we begin to obey the gospel among the poor? Let's pray together. Father, these things that we're discussing are beyond, us, beyond our capacity, beyond our heart's willingness. And so, Lord, drill the gospel deep into our lives so that we become more like Christ in this world. Lord, we praise you ahead of time for the good works that will please you in doing through us. We trust our our lives into your care towards that end. In the name of Christ, amen.
1: Give my soul to be martyred Sell my every ounce of freedom to the slave Let my crooked hand point the poor man to the water, lay in the dust of my flesh, brain flowers to the grave. Wild and free In the end And I know I'll be here Somewhere wild and free In the end Bring. altar, see my heart's petition ascend into the throne, let the poet's pen and the dark sword of the psalter. Separate the flesh and sinews from the bone And I know I'll be somewhere wild and free in the end And I know I'll be here somewhere wild and free in the end And I know I'll be somewhere wild and free in the end And I know I'll be here somewhere wild and free in the end
0: dedicate our offering. Father, we we do give to you these offerings and pray, Lord, that you might multiply them many, many, many times over, feeding the masses as you did with the fish and the loaves. Glorify yourself in and through these gifts. May your kingdom advance for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.